Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, October 22nd, I think it is, 2014. Um, a, a couple of quick announcements before we get into today's festivities. Uh, of course, this weekend is the Chad Hero, so hopefully everyone's registered or signed up to walk, run, hike, or, or volunteer, or otherwise support those who are doing those things as our major fundraiser. And as you probably have heard, half of the proceeds this year are um, earmarked go directly to the inpatient Five East Ward refresh project. So you'll see immediate effects within the next 12 to 18 months. Um, tonight, there is a showing of a, a provocative film. I think the Boyle program is sponsoring uh, Barrel to the Head, I think is the title on um, suicide prevention and, and gun safety here in Auditorium ENF. Kathy, do you, are you? I, me, Kathy, Kathy Stoffer. Kathy, Kathy here. No, okay. So, um, so yes, it is I basically have it right, right? Yeah. Between six and eight tonight, and the Boyle program is sponsoring it. So there are panelists, uh, both from the mental health field. There's actually an owner of the gun shop who's going to be coming. Um, it should be really, so it'll be a really broad range of community that'll be here. So it'll be really fascinating for anybody to attend. Um, and it should be well represented, hopefully. And Grand Rounds next week um, is still a TBD, but Tina Duhem, an old friend, is returning to speak on a neurosurgical topic of importance and, and relevance. So today we're really excited. Um, I'm really excited to have uh, uh, Chris Duggan joining us. Dr. Duggan is the director of and founding director of the Center for Nutrition at Boston Children's Hospital. Um, he comes back to us as a 1983 graduate from Dartmouth College and was uh, um, revisiting Baker Library yesterday, among other places. Uh, completed his uh, medical training as an MD at Johns Hopkins, uh, as well as his internship and residency at Johns Hopkins Hospital before coming to Boston for fellowship training in gastroenterology and nutrition at Massachusetts General and Boston Children's Hospital, where he spent uh, the, rest the, the rest of his career to date uh, advancing to the uh, rank of Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. He is a, a leading figure in uh, uh, nutrition, both uh, locally, nutritional management of uh, sick and Ill, ch Ill children, but also globally, does a lot of work in global health and nutrition for women and children, has worked with our colleagues, Dr. Palumbo in Tanzania and others here at Dartmouth in the same MUHAS program that we have partnerships with. He is uh, well recognized as a teacher, uh, not, not only in the fellowship and the residencies at Boston Children's and nationally and internationally, but also at Harvard College now uh, teaching a course, which must be fun, and is the co-editor of the uh, upcoming fifth edition of um, Nutrition and Pediatrics Basic Science and Clinical Applications, which is the leading reference in the field, along with the um, Manual of Pediatric Nutrition, a very useful handbook for those of us in practice. So I could go on and on through 44 pages of CV, but I'd prefer not to keep embarrassing Chris. And uh, just thank you for coming and joining us. Thanks, uh, thanks Keith, for the, the kind words. Um, should, I, should I use both or just this one? Okay, great, thanks so much. Um, 
and, and thanks for arranging the Seattle-like weather for me uh, today. <laughs> I came up early. I was all excited. I threw my bike in the car, and I said, I'm going to go on this great bike ride and uh, go back to the stomping grounds of Vermont and New Hampshire. It didn't work out so well, but I did, as, as uh, Keith mentioned, have uh, uh, some fun time at the Baker Library. Um, so, so it is great to, to be back home. Um, I, as point of disclosure, um, I'll talk a little bit at the end of uh, my discussion about an industry-sponsored study. There's a, a gastrointestinal-specific uh, growth hormone that we're studying in children with short bowel syndrome, but that's my only industry uh, um, disclosure. Uh, by way of uh, learning objectives for today's talk, I thought we would review first the definitions, etiology, and natural history of intestinal failure. Intestinal failure is a, a relatively new term, uh, and um, in general, the literature on this condition has been populated by small retrospective reviews, and luckily there's new data that's um, been multi-center in nature and has allowed us a little bit better to prognosticate on the natural history of what can be a devastating condition. Uh, the use of intravenous fat emulsions has been one area of uh, parenteral nutrition that's, sought, that's been somewhat controversial over the past few years. I'll review those indications. Um, many of us have been struggling not just with medication shortages, but with shortages of parenteral components to nutrition. So I will review some of our strategies to cope with those uh, shortages. And then, as I mentioned, we'll discuss uh, a bit of the upcoming uh, GLP-2 trial. Um, First, I thought it would be helpful, though, to review a case of a child with short bowel syndrome. And I don't know how many of you saw the New York Times, uh, Times and Review section this Sunday, but a, uh, a, a psychiatrist, psychologist talked about the importance that physicians still need to hear stories, that it's important to learn about data and uh, important to review population-based stories, if you will. But the, but the case vignette still um, is an important way for people to learn and for physicians to kind of consolidate their views on a condition. And I think uh, this case presentation is a great example of that. So this was a child who was born in another hospital and at, with a history of prematurity and developed classic symptoms and signs of necrotizing and enterocolitis uh, with uh, pneumatosis intestinalis and free air. And the child underwent uh, urgent exploratory laparotomy um, where the surgeon uh, did a massive resection of most of the jejunum and ileum. And at that point, uh, the surgeon noted that there was only about five centimeters of small intestine that seemed viable to him. And he wrote in his operative note that this was classic neck totalis, or a neck that is so severe it involves all of the intestine. And the child was so sick, they actually couldn't close the abdomen, so they left an abdominal silo in place. And the next morning, the attending surgeon and attending neonatologist uh, peeked into the silo. All they saw was uh, black bowel, and they told the the family that there was really nothing that they could do. So the child was withdrawn from support. The child was made DNR. Um, and so I'll, I'll stop the story then, and we'll pick it up later in the, uh, in the lecture. For, with respect to definitions of intestinal failure, the accepted definition, if you will, of this condition is a reduction of functional intestinal mass necessary for adequate digestion and absorption for nutrient fluid and growth requirements. So you can tell that. Uh, People interested in pediatrics must have been part of this definition because, in fact, there is a, an important concept that children with intestinal failure don't have just <coughs> short bowel, because, but, but they have reduction of functional mass. So you can have adequate length of bowel, but if it doesn't work well, as in the case with motility disorders, that's a way to come under the umbrella of intestinal failure. And if you, can, um, if you can't grow adequately, that's also a functional definition. In other words, there's no specific anatomic definition of intestinal failure, despite multiple efforts to, to do that over the years. 
There have been three major classifications of intestinal failure, including um, surgical short bowel syndrome, and the literature is much more robust concerning that condition. But as I mentioned, motility disorders and uh, rare but devastating intestinal epithelial defects, such as uh, microvillus inclusion disease and tufting enteropathy. From a functional standpoint and from a research standpoint, we often use a relatively arbitrary cut point of 90 days of duration on parenteral nutrition in infancy um, for short bowel syndrome. And this is important to at least have some kind of uh, criterion that everyone can agree on with respect to comparing outcomes and inclusion criteria across different centers. We um, have also had some experience with other quote-unquote functional definitions, and this is a child who had a history of necrotizing enterocolitis and presented to us with a history of hematochesia, and we were concerned that the hematochesia was related to a post-neck uh, stricture of the colon, and so we sent our patient down for a contrast enema, and our radiologists are very thorough people, and they weren't happy just to see that the colon looked normal, uh, but they followed the contrast up through the rest of the small intestine, through the stomach, and up into the esophagus. So you can bet that if you send one of your patients down for a contrast enema, and they say things like, well, Nissen fundoplication intact, then that patient certainly has a history of short bowel syndrome. So <laughs> complete, complete opacification of the bowel from contrast is a, is a good definition. Another patient we were performing colonoscopy on, and we found this lesion at the end of the colonoscopy. Anyone care to guess what that is? <coughs> So that's the mucosal biopsy site of our upper endoscopy that we've done previously. And in fact, here's the gastric, here's the Mickey balloon in the stomach. So if you can reach the stomach and do gastric biopsies through a colonoscopy, that's a sure bet that your child has a short bowel syndrome too. Anyone know what this is? Any, any students in the audience want to guess what this is? So this is a cause of intestinal uh, intestinal failure or short bowel syndrome. And this is a classic case of intestinal atresia. Okay, so intestinal atresia occurs when there's inadequate vascular development in utero and a, a small atretic or fibrous band occurs where there's normally should be a loop of intestine. And you can see inspissated meconium that exists before this bowel obstruction. And you can imagine that distal to this segment of intestine, there's a small uh, microcolon. So uh, a skilled surgeon needs to connect this dilated small bowel with a very small uh, colon distally. What about this condition? So this is, this is classic gastroschisis, right? Uh, the bowel literally outgrows its capacity to develop in utero. Uh, it outgrows the capacity of the abdominal cavity. It fails to uh, return to that cavity. Um, and uh, develops outside the abdominal cavity, and as a result, has um, a, uh, a, um, an inflammatory exudate that can occur on the serosal side of the bowel. And you can see that the length of this intestine is actually quite adequate, um, but you get the feeling even through the picture that there's a very thick, woody feeling to the serosal component of the bowel. And so these patients can have often have prolonged dependence on parental nutrition because of dysmotility. And what about this? child, what, what condition do they have? This is a child with uh, ischemic bowel disease or what we call necrotizing enterocolitis. You can see the discoloration on his abdomen. And if you were to do an x-ray, you would find the classic signs of pneumatosis intestinalis. Um, so that's, a, that's kind of a quick overview of conditions that lead to intestinal failure. 
Now, one of the main components of taking care of children with intestinal failure is this concept of intestinal adaptation. So children who undergo massive resection or congenital or acquired lesions of, the, of their gastrointestinal tract thankfully develop this process where the remaining bowel adapts to take into consideration reduced surface area. And, and one of the things I learned uh, as, a, as an undergraduate here is there's nothing new under the sun. This is a 1978 review article in the New England Journal, which basically lists all of the different stimuli that have an effect on increased cell proliferation or decreased cell proliferation in the setting of massive bowel resection. And these also often have been worked out through animal models. But as we learn more about the human's response to gastrointestinal resection, we know, for instance, that prolonged fasting or prolonged parenteral nutrition leads to reduced cell proliferation, exactly the component that you don't want to have happen when you have massive resection. Uh, and likewise, a variety of intestinal resections um, and other stimuli lead to increased <coughs> cell um, proliferation. And as we'll talk about at the end of the talk, the use of different hormones to increase gastrointestinal proliferation is a promising area for these children. For many years, we've known that the residual small bowel surface area or length has been one of the key prognostic factors in whether a child with intestinal failure will survive or not. And this is taken from a 1968 review of all of the cases of short bowel syndrome, which at that time were in the medical literature. In 1968, widespread use of parenteral nutrition was not in, in vogue, wasn't available. Um, so in the absence of parenteral nutrition and in the presence of a residual bowel length of about 30 or 40 centimeters, sorry, this is a bit um, blurry, but this is residual small intestinal length in centimeters, and these are two groups of subjects. One group has the ileocecal valve uh, that is intact and another in which the ileocecal valve was resected. You can see that between 30 and 40 centimeters of residual small bowel and the absence of the ileocecal valve was associated at that time with 100% mortality. Uh, the relationship between bowel length and mortality in children who, with whom the ileocecal valve was intact was less clear cut. You can see some people, um, some children still died with higher amounts of bowel, but in general, uh, the pres preservation of the valve seemed to improve survival in children with massive resection. And in fact, subsequent case studies, as I alluded to, many of these were single-centered retrospective reviews, suggested that residual small bowel length, preservation of the ileocecal valve, resection of the ileum is uh, not as well tolerated as resection of the jejunum for a variety of reasons. Absence of mucosal disease, so if there are two patients who have the same amount of bowel resection, children with necrotizing enterocolitis or older children with Crohn's disease won't do as well as those children who have say a mid-gut volvulus or other causes of bowel loss, but the residual bowel has no mucosal inflammation. The preservation of the colon is also an important component. Again, if you have a child who has an endileostomy as opposed to those child who, children who are intact and their colon contributes to water and electrolyte absorption, children with preservation of the colon do better, both from a mortality perspective as well as from a dependence on parental nutrition perspective. And then, you know, thankfully, this is why we're pediatricians. Uh, infants do better than children. Children do better than adults because of their intrinsic capacity for intestinal adaptation. A few years ago, we quantified this risk of reduced surface area, reduced um, residual small bowel, and the odds of weaning from parenteral nutrition. Um, so on this y-axis, we have the number of patients that were reviewed. On the x-axis, we have the measured residual small bowel length in centimeters. 
And on this y-axis, we have the probability of weaning from parental nutrition. This is a logistic regression curve. This uh, sigmoid curve, if you will, uh, was fitted to plot the data. And on the scheme of things, if you get to the the, the coin flip, if you will, of 50% probability of weaning, it's very interesting to note that even in a more modern era, the, the range of 30 to 40 centimeters is still the rough estimate of when children can and cannot wean from parental nutrition. Um, but as I always say, that's what the model says, and there are certainly uh, two infants, uh, infant, these two infants who wean from parental nutrition. I should have stated that uh, bars above the zero point weaned from parental nutrition successfully, and the darker graphs did not wean from parental nutrition were permanently on PN. You can see that this 30 or 40 centimeters is not a perfect measure because there are at least two children who weaned with much less bowel and at least one child who did not wean with more bowel. So from an individual perspective, um, using a, a finite number can be tricky, but from a population perspective, those, that's what the data suggested in 2001. We'll update that in uh, in one second. I mentioned previously that many of the, uh, many, much of what we know about intestinal failure has been populated by case reports. And I was uh, happy to be involved in a consortium of centers, all of whom had interest in pediatric intestinal failure, uh, which published its results just a couple years ago on the natural history of this disease. And about 272 children with intestinal failure made up this report. Um, three, a quarter of them had necrotizing enterocolitis, but other congenital anomalies, including some of the ones we've discussed already, made up the, uh, made up the rest of the uh, cohort. Interestingly, nearly a quarter of children had multiple single diagnoses. So this includes children who had gastroschisis and ischemic bowel disease after that, or uh, volvulus and residual ischemia as well. Um, so I think that's an important concept, in fact, because rarely are these children uh, succinct and unified diagnoses. So if there's one slide that I should say is my take-home slide of, of this talk, I'd like to um, review figure, figure one here uh, from the paper in, in moderate detail. And what you have on the y-axis is the cumulative incidence of three different outcomes and a long time of follow-up. So many, many children were followed for at least four to five to six years off after their initial diagnosis. <laughs> And what you see here are three different outcomes, the weaning of parental nutrition and the achievement of enteral autonomy, uh, death, and uh, intestinal transplantation. <clears throat> and what you see, interestingly, are the following points. Uh, number one is that obviously in the first year after diagnosis, there's a very steep increase in those children who can achieve enteral autonomy and wean from parental nutrition. So that's great news. Up to 35% of all children in this cohort were weaned from parental nutrition. But one of the important components of this uh, data are, is that these children, even when followed long-term, long can continue to make progress in weaned from parental nutrition. And that's an important concept because you'll read surgical and pediatric textbooks, even still, that say, well, uh, adaptation, this process of uh, adapting to massive bowel resection, really is complete by a year or two after resection. And these data would, would uh, propose that actually intestinal adaptation can occur three, four, five, or six years after intestinal adaptation, after intestinal resection. And that's an important concept because these children really shouldn't be referred prematurely to transplantation. And you can see that actually um, 
death rate, it was not, not inconsiderable either. 25% of these children were dead at the, after four years of follow-up, and a, a similar component had undergone intestinal transplantation. So number one, pediatric intestinal failure has one of the highest mortality rates of almost any condition that we take care of. Uh, and number two, uh, we shouldn't give up on the process of intestinal adaptation and achievement of enteral autonomy. Uh, recently, my colleagues and I did a secondary analysis of this data set to see if we could tease apart some of the components, some of the risk factors, if you will, for achieving enteral autonomy. Uh, in our multivariate analysis, we had two different models. One model included all children, all 272 infants. Oops, this is kind of jumping ahead um, in the data set. And model two included only those children for whom we had measured residual bowel lengths in the operating room. The three components in this initial analysis, which were associated with successful enteral autonomy, were the presence or absence of necrotizing enterocolitis, um, so that children with neck were more than twice as likely to achieve enteral autonomy than children without necrotizing enterocolitis, that the reception of breast milk, um, children who were breastfed or received breast milk in the early component, in the early times after surgery, were more than twice as likely likely to achieve enteral autonomy than children who did not receive breast milk. And interestingly, if the children, if the infants were taken care of at a site which had a multivisceral or intestinal transplantation program, actually they were much more likely to be transplanted and maintained on parental nutrition than those children who were taken care of at sites without such transplant expertise or experience. The second model, as I mentioned, only included a subset of children for whom residual bowel length was available. And not surprisingly, for every centimeter of residual bowel length, children were 4% more likely to be weaning from parental nutrition than others. It's got a mind of its own here. Um, I mentioned that the Endorsky paper was about 13 years old, and a, a colleagues of ours in the surgery department essentially updated that approach by saying, well, let's see how we're doing in the more recent era from 2004 to 2012. They defined children with <coughs> intestinal failure somewhat differently uh, than we had previously. They used an anatomic cut point as well as a relatively conservative duration of time on parental nutrition. Overall, 63% achieved full enteral autonomy. Again, this stands in contrast to the PIFCON data where only 25% had. 17% uh, were persistently dependent on parental nutrition, and nearly 20% had transplant or death. Again, high rates of transplantation and death, but perhaps better than had been seen previously. The um, graph that they used very much mimicked the graph that I had shown you previously, um, in that the number of patients on the y-axis versus the probability of weaning were compared, as well as the residual small bowel length. And as I'll show you in a second, that curve seems to have uh, shifted dramatically to the left. Another approach, of course, is looking at residual bowel length as a cut point. And the cut point that, for them, gave the best separation of data was about 50 centimeters. So if you have greater than 50 centimeters of residual small bowel length, at uh, 20 months, 24 months on parental nutrition, the weaning from parental nutrition approached 100%. If you had less than 50 centimeters, however, even um, at, uh, at two years post-resection, your probability of weaning from parental nutrition was about 50-50, but again, with prolonged follow-up and good medical care, that can be increased to 75%. So what do I mean about our outcomes improving? How low can we grow? 
if you compare the cut point of a logistic curve between 30 and 40 centimeters, the more recent data would suggest, interestingly, between 10 and 20 centimeters is the point at which you would say, well, it's 50% odds that your child will still remain on parental nutrition. And that's really a, quite a considerable improvement in only a decade of experience. Another concept of natural history of intestinal failure bears uh, discussing, too, another concept of how low can you grow, and this is with respect to growth of children with intestinal failure. And this is a group from the Netherlands which basically uh, compared two case series of their children with intestinal failure, one from the 1980s and one from the 1990s. And they all had comparable underlying diagnoses, degree of prematurity, and essentially residual bowel length. But not surprisingly, those children who were born more recently in the 1990s had a shorter length of stay by several weeks and a shorter duration of parenteral nutrition. Um, but what they seemed especially happy with was that their growth parameters were much better in the more recent experience. On the y-axis, we have standard deviation scores, uh, weight for age, and on the x-axis, we have time. And as you can see, there's a distinct improvement in the uh, pink data, the data from 1990s to the year 2000, where at every point over the first year of follow-up, essentially, uh, the mean weight for HZ score was substantially better than at the earlier time point. Um, but what they don't point out is how horrendous these Z-scores are, right? So if you have a mean Z-score of minus 2.5, you're really not doing so well. So um, I think there's clearly uh, room for improvement with respect to nutritional uh, management of these, of these children. I said recently that I would talk about intravenous fat emulsions, and again, one of the important case, case series that was published in the, in the year 2004 highlighted the importance of cholestatic liver disease in impacting survival. 78 patients with short bowel syndrome were, were reviewed by the UCLA group. They have a, one of the oldest home parental nutrition programs in the country, um, and they had a median follow-up of nine years with a range of two to 23, so uh, an incredibly rich data set. Um, and the point that I wanted to make from their paper was that the presence or absence of cholestasis was the most important factor that impacted on child survival. So if you had, if you had cholestasis while receiving parental nutrition, your, um, percent, your survival rate was about 20%, quite dismal, 80% mortality rate, whereas if you did not have cholestasis, the numbers were reversed with an 80% survival rate. Um, and for many years, people have struggled with this concept of what causes parental nutrition-associated liver injury or liver disease. And in general, the, the hypotheses have broken down into whether this is a nutrient deficiency. A number of animal models have suggested that cholestasis or acetohepatitis can occur with a variety of nutrient deficiencies. Or concomitantly, was it something in the parental nutrition component that was toxic to the liver, excess energy, excess protein, individual amino acids, or fats? And I think our recent data would, would implicate the role of intravenous fats in causing cholestasis. Um, after a variety of uh, animal studies, uh, we actually have started treating children with intravenous omega-3 fatty acid. Um, and this was the, the case that really made a believer uh, of me that intravenous omega-3 fatty acids could abrogate the um, measure of liver injury, at least as measured by bilirubin. So again, on the y-axis, we have two components of inflammation. One is bilirubin, direct bilirubin, and one is C-reactive protein, both in milligrams per deciliter. Uh, bilirubin is the uh, green curve, and CRP is the blue line. Uh, and then, just for the sake of argument, these are, uh, this is a child who could not be fed. He had a, uh, a really complicated course of necrotizing enterocolitis and uh, multiple fistula. So enteral feedings were unsuccessful for months and months, and that's the red line, percent enteral feeding. 
Um, and this blue arrow is the point at which we switched out his soybean oil-based interlipid infusion with uh, one gram per kilogram of omega-3 fatty acids. And you can see initially the bilirubin uh, seemed to increase. The direct bilirubin was about four. It went up to about seven. And then over the next several weeks, there was an inevitable decline in bilirubin that only peaked once when the child had an acute uh, inflammatory stress with a urinary tract infection. Uh, but this really convinced me that in the absence of enteral nutrition, we could normalize serum bilirubin as a marker of liver injury with the use of uh, omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, we subsequently published a somewhat larger uh, case study of 18 children who developed cholestasis. All were taken off interlipids and all were treated with omega-van. And we compared that with 21 infants from the uh, Andorsky case series. In panel A, you can see the pattern of direct bilirubin. This is the solid line here is when they were switched from interlipid. There was a progression before interlipid was switched out. Afterwards, it takes about a month for bilirubins to decline. And this is the contrasting historical cohort data where, with the persistence of intralipid, you can see a progressive increase in direct bilirubin and, and liver problems. Uh, animal models actually um, recently published by Ron Sokol's group out at the University of Colorado would suggest that there's a specific component of uh, soy-based intralipids that relate to this cholestatic liver injury. So animals uh, for whom measurements of total bilirubin in panel C or total serum bile acids in panel D were sequentially or, or, or randomized to different models, different nutrient interventions. One is animal chow. One is animal chow with a, um, a DSS intervention which mimics an inflammatory stress to the gastrointestinal tract. And then one is chow, the DSS colitis um, inducer and intravenous normal saline. And you can see with all of these three components, both bile acids and serum bilirubin are essentially normal. However, if you make it, uh, an animal NPO, give them an inflammatory stress and treat them with soy-based parenteral nutrition, you see a very significant increase in bilirubin and bile acids. If you um, provide the same amount of NPO, DSS, and switch out the fish oil from the soy oil, you can see substantial declines in bilirubin as well as bile acids. And if you spike the fish oil uh, with a stigma, stigmastaterol, uh, which is one of the components of the plant-based, soy-based soy -based intralipid, you can see prompt increases in bilirubin and bile acids. So uh, this, these and other data really would suggest that there's a component of soy oil that is uh, hepatotoxic, uh, and therefore that minimization of this exposure is an important concept in treating children with intestinal failure. Uh, now, the problem with omega-3 fatty acids and the problem with any dietary supplement per se is that it, uh, it doesn't really uh, uh, get studied or regulated in the same way that <laughs> medications do, right? So if we could sadly take all of the marketing funds that are used to uh, promote the use of various dietary supplements and, and add them to regulatory components, I think the status of our health would be much improved because it doesn't take long for you to do a Google search and find out all kinds of other indications for omega-3 fatty acids for all kinds of uh, uh, conditions. Um, so that truly has hampered, I think, our ability to study this in a, in a, uh, in a rational way. But I am convinced of, about our data. <coughs> Um, interestingly, uh, for many, many years, intralipid was the only FDA-approved intravenous fat source. It still is for children. Uh, clinoleic acid has just recently been approved for the use in adults. 
Omegavan, which is 100% fish oil, is used, still used only on an individual IND. The IND has been uh, distributed across many sites in our country, and so children are getting access to this, but only if the physicians taking care of them jump through uh, numerous regulatory hoops. Um, and the company that makes Omegavan is actually more interested in uh, marketing a product called SMOF, which is a component of both fish oil, uh, omega-3 fat, uh, fish oil, um, olive oil, um, menhaden oil, and soy-based oil, which is a blend of all these fats. Um, one, critic, one criticism of our work, of course, is that many of the children who were taken off the soy-based soy intralipid were switched from a higher dose of lipids, three grams per kilo per day, and switched to one gram per kilo per day of the fish oil. So many people said, well, how do you know it's the fish oil that has these magical properties? Isn't it just the dose? Um, and in fact, the, the Dan Teitelbaum's uh, group in University of Michigan provided some interesting data to suggest with reducing the intravenous soy oil um, to one gram or even fewer, uh, direct bilirubins could be reduced compared to a historical control receiving three grams per kilo per day. Um, and we have actually um, presented some data to suggest that both uh, it's safe to do that and it's uh, effective to limit fat to one, gr one gram per kilo per day. The safety is an important issue, so those of you who are in the NICU realize that if you reduce fat as a source of calories to just one gram per kilo per day, you have to make up the rest of calories with dextrose. And in fact, uh, our patients often are receiving glucose infusion rates of uh, 12, 15, 18 milligrams per kilograms per minute, which is actually quite considerable. And in fact, when they go home on parenteral nutrition and are only receiving it for 12 hours or 14 hours per day, uh, the GIRs can increase even more substantially. Uh, Thankfully, in only a few handful of cases have we seen uh, patients with glucose urea requiring us to, to either lengthen the time on PN or reduce component of dextrose. Data concerning uh, the effectiveness of limiting fat to one gram per kilo per day for the prevention of cholestasis have recently been published. Um, in, in one paper, again, from our institution, they actually presented these data, and I, I can't say I agree totally with their conclusion. So they reviewed 61 infants with short bowel syndrome who received parental nutrition for at least three weeks. And this was not a randomized trial, it was just a retrospective analysis, about 30 uh, in each group. Um, if you look at the freedom, quote unquote, freedom from cholestasis as measured by a direct bilirubin of greater than two, there was really no difference in the rate of time at which children developed cholestatic liver disease. However, if you looked at the percent change in bilirubin from baseline, uh, you can see in general, I think that the one gram per kilo group uh, tended to do better, and actually after six weeks of therapy, this, this, this relationship did achieve statistical significance. It was downplayed by the authors of this uh, paper, however, um, and I think that this really does give further evidence that with prolonged dependence on parental nutrition, uh, fat limitation is an important concept. In your, uh, one randomized trial that I know of was performed on this topic and was recently published in the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition uh, by Drs. Levitt and Ehrenkranz. And uh, they randomized infants with prematurity to receive either one gram per kilo per day or uh, three grams per kilo per day. And I'm not sure if you've seen these, uh, these data before, but if you look at any kind of uh, outcome in terms of maximum direct bilirubin, uh, direct bilirubin at 28-day length of stay, liver function tests, all of these were no difference between the two groups. And so these data would suggest actually it doesn't make sense to limit fat intake, but I would uh, point out that this is a group of infants without complicated surgical gastrointestinal disease, and in fact, even their maximum, uh, maximum direct bilirubin 
at any time point during the study was really not substantial. Um, so, I, so my take-home message is that if you have an average premature infant who's not going to require parental nutrition for very long or only has, um, uh, does not have surgical gastrointestinal diseases, that it probably doesn't make sense to restrict lipids. However, if that child is going to depend on parental nutrition for two, three, or four weeks, it probably makes sense uh, to do so. And that, indeed, is our approach at, at Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, that among all patients likely to be on parental nutrition for more than three weeks, which is complicated gastroschisis, complicated necrotizer endocolitis, uh, we reduce uh, interlipid dose to one gram per kilo per day. If, despite that approach, they develop cholestasis, then we switch them to this experimental therapy of omegavan. So moving along, manufacturing shortages, I'm sure they've plagued uh, folks here for a variety of different reasons. It seems like every time we open the, um, uh, the, the page, we're, we're limited with, in fact, what we can offer our patients. And uh, um, when Christy Hendricks and I worked together at Boston Children's Hospital, the acronym we, we would use, we would call this total parental nutrition, right, TPN. But that's really a misnomer because there are many concepts, many nutrients that are part of parental nutrition uh, that perhaps shouldn't be in there. And, as I'm, and certainly there are components of parental nutrition that should be in there that aren't. So the use, the use of the word total is a misnomer. <laughs> and when we reviewed our uh, nutrient status of a number of children with intestinal failure, we were um, really shocked to find that a variety of micronutrient deficiencies were seen, even in children who were receiving what was presumably a full component of parental nutrition. So uh, nearly a quarter of patients had vitamin A deficiency. A good, a good number had uh, vitamin D deficiency. Copper deficiency was seen in more than half. Um, and these were children who were receiving PN or were being weaned from parental nutrition. If you looked at those, the frequency of micronutrient deficiencies while they were receiving full enteral nutrition was considerably higher. Not surprisingly, the zinc deficiency, vitamin D deficiency went from 20% to nearly 70%, and anemia was quite common as well. So this, this, comp, this, this idea that, well, the patient's on parental nutrition, so you don't have to worry about their nutrient intake is really a false one. Uh, there have been a number of component shortages that have included phosphate, multivitamins, trace elements, uh, and ethanol. And as I'm sure you're aware, the US uh, FDA has a website through which these can be tracked and, and should, in fact, be, uh, be monitored that way. Um, these shortages uh, have had clinical implications for children with intestinal failure. Um, there's a, there was a three premature infants at uh, Washington, D.C.'s Children's Hospital, all of whom had cholestasis and parental nutrition dependence. And in fact, they were noted to have these skin lesions, so people thought they were septic and, and underwent a very extensive um, septic workup. But it turns out this was zinc deficiency, right? It's just not normally uh, expected to see in, in your NICU. So um, I think that's an important concept to undertake. The ethanol shortage, so we use ethanol um, CVL blocks to reduce the chances of bacterial line infections. Um, and this was actually a therapy that Teitelbaum's group really started. And ethanol shortages in this paper pointed out that in the absence of uh, ethanol lock therapy, well, let me, let me back up and say that before they started using ethanol, the rate of central catheter-related bloodstream infections was about eight per thousand catheter days. Once they started using it, they reduced their rate to about one per thousand catheter days. However, um, when they had to back off on the frequency of using ethanol locks because of ethanol shortages, look what happened to their central line infection rate, went back up to six per thousand catheter days. So adverse effects are, adverse events are affecting our patients due to these drug shortages, unfortunately. There's a lot of reasons why these shortages occur. They include both raw material shortages, 
uh, different industries are finding it not cost effective. There are fewer manufacturing uh, firms. And the remaining companies don't have uh, easily uh, increased capacity to, to make these. It's been the subject of, uh, of great debate in Washington with uh, efforts by the White House to uh, reduce these shortages. Uh, one of the things I found out when I was uh, preparing this in another talk was that they're in, oh, of course, this happens to be in Miami. There is something called the Miami Institute for Age Management and Intervention. Uh, beautiful medicine, demanding standards, and exquisite results, right? So a bunch of white people in Miami apparently need all kinds of cosmetic uh, medicine, surgery, etc. But look at in the right-hand corner, we have intravenous therapy. It turns out that uh, uh, people are, re are people are using intravenous nutrients and vitamins to take better care of themselves. And only in Miami would you have a Dr. Adonis, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who says there's a connection between feeling well, being well, and living a full, vibrant life? Who can argue with that? Uh, but when it interferes with the ability to provide adequate nutrition to, to infants, that really is uh, quite a problem. Our own medication back orders with sodium phosphate uh, are listed here. Um, potassium phosphate was limited as well. Our approach, um, oh, this got cut off, but basically uh, avoid prescribing parenteral nutrition, and we had to switch all of our uh, PN amino acids from um, um, all patients. We use freeamine instead of uh, trophamine and other uh, better amino acid mixes because of the increased amount of phosphate in freeamine. Um, we sometimes relied upon the small amount of phosphate that's in soybean oil interlipid to provide us the phosphate. Um, and we were aggressive about using oral, enteral, or sometimes rectal phosphate infusions to meet maintenance requirements. The, um, I work with a great pharmacist who, who sent me this great email back in September, and it was entitled, Parental Nutrition IV Vitamin Update. Good news, and I read it. And I was so happy to say that Kathy was telling us that, well, now we can use the appropriate dose of uh, pediatric, of adult infuvite for children under over age 12, and this is great. But then she said, unfortunately, other shortages involving phosphate, potassium, trace elements, trophamine, and interlipid continue. Uh, I think we have water. I think that's one thing that we can, <laughs> we can have. But the others, I'm not so sure about. Um, so significant implications of these shortages for our patients. Uh, biochemical monitoring is, is really critical, right? You can't just assume they're receiving adequate nutrition uh, just because a bag of yellow fluid is hanging over their bedside. And, and really, advocacy efforts must continue. I know our pediatric GI group has been uh, very much in the forefront of advocating for improved monitoring and increased capacity for these vital parenteral, um, parenteral components. So in the couple minutes I have left, I did want to review um, this uh, exciting trial of uh, GLP-2. So what is GLP-2? The intestinal uh, enteroendocrine cell, cell produces a, a glucagon-like peptide, and it's cleaved from its precursor molecule, proglucagon. And GLP-1 is actually a, a very hot topic of those uh, drug companies that are interested in proposing or designing drugs for appetite uh, control, but I'm more interested in this tail end molecule called GLP-2, uh, which from a variety of animal studies seems to be important for uh, trophic factors of the gastrointestinal tract. Why do I say that? If you have um, newborn piglets and you take a cross section of them and they're receiving uh, pig milk, you can see very nice developed uh, crypt and villi. If you take that same piglet and make them NPO and provide their nutrition with parental nutrition, you can see a, a great degree of mucosal atrophy. This is uh, a, a well-known complication of uh, uh, starvation. However, if you take the same model of a pig who's not receiving any enteral nutrition and, and 
providing parental nutrition plus this GLP-2, you have a very uh, aggressive and hypertrophy mucosa that presumably leads to increased absorptive capacity. Um, in adult studies, if you look at the liters per week of dependence on parenteral nutrition, uh, tadeuglutide is the name of the commercial preparation. Um, and in this placebo-controlled study, you can see that after 24 weeks of tadeuglutide therapy, uh, there's about a four liters per week reduction in parenteral nutrition use. Um, interestingly, even the placebo recipients, there was about two liter reduction in parenteral nutrition use, suggesting that with better medical care, these uh, adults can be taken care of better even without drug <coughs> therapy. But these differences were certainly statistically significant. Um, and I'm going to skip over this in the interest of time, but just to say there are more recent data from um, a, a prolonged therapy after one week of therapy. One, one year of therapy, you can see that they continued those two arms that I've shown you previously. Uh, they were continued, the two treatment arms were continued for a total of uh, uh, 52 weeks. And you can see that even with continued therapy, there was a continued reduction, uh, regardless of the dose of tadeuglutide used in uh, liters per week of parenteral nutrition use. Um, so this is important, of course, because parenteral nutrition is an extremely expensive therapy that's associated with uh, many risks. Um, not surprisingly, the GLP-2 analog is also extremely expensive. And sadly, in adults, when the therapy is withdrawn, uh, the requirement for parental nutrition seems to uh, recur. Um, and whether this happens in kids is obviously an open book. A number of adverse reactions have uh, been reported with GATEX. As with any growth-promoting hormone, you're certainly interested in making sure that they don't have an underlying neoplastic consideration. I show this screen because it's a screenshot of uh, my computer, and I'm not sure if you can read it well, but since 2000, since the year 2000, I've actually been after this company to develop a pediatric component. But in typical uh, phrases, typical history, they, they went to, uh, to study adults first. But I'm happy to say that we're finally studying in children across uh, many sites in, uh, in this country. And it's an interesting study design because essentially the company first wanted to make sense, establish safety in pediatric patients. So there's three different, four different cohorts, one of which is an observational standard of care arm, and three different cohorts that were rolled out in sequence, a low, a low, a very low dose, a very low dose, and half the adult dose that's being marketed. Um, and these uh, cohorts were each assessed after eight patients were enrolled in each cohort. DSMD basically said no safety concerns were, were raised, and so uh, we're now actually have finished the enrollment in, in the third cohort, um, and we hope to have safety data about this, about this drug. I worry that the company is then going to turn to the FDA and say, well, we've got efficacy data in adults, we've got safety data in kids, is that enough for a pediatric indication? I would obviously much prefer an efficacy study to be designed in children, um, but we'll see, we'll see how, that, how that happens. Um, I'll leave some time for questions and just uh, turn back to our case presentation. Remember way back an hour ago, we talked about this child who was in an outside hospital. He was made DNR, ischemic bowel was seen through the silo. Well, uh, thankfully, his parents uh, had access to the internet <coughs> and um, uh, they arranged for transfer to, to Children's Hospital. And um, we, with the surgical team, uh, took good care of her. She um, had, it, it turns out that we, they, in the operating room, we, uh, Dr. Buckmiller removed the silo and performed a, a proximal loop jejunoscopy. And when she measured the residual bowel length, it indeed was only six centimeters noted distal to the ligament of trite. So we really thought that this was a child who was going to be uh, doomed for prolonged parental nutrition. Um, we uh, started her on the omega van therapy. She got excellent NICU supportive care. And we performed an upper GI small bowel series, which did confirm very, very uh, short bowel. Uh, she grew quite well. 
Um, this is a direct bilirubin over time. She came to us uh, just mildly jaundiced, but uh, after she was switched to omega vin and slash lipid restriction, her bilirubin normalized. Um, and then in December 2010, she underwent a takedown of her jejunostomy with a small bowel anastomosis. Um, and it, it turns out that her distal small bowel, um, there was a fistula noted, which I, I think the best thing to do is show you that picture. So here's her diverting loop jejunostomy when she went to the operating room in December. Um, and here is her duodenum, which essentially caused a fistula right into her cecum. So here's her appendix here, and that's why the contrast study really showed that there was only six centimeters of bowel right into her colon here. However, uh, what it did effectively was bypass this very long <coughs> loop of uh, unused distal bowel, about 49 centimeters of residual small bowel was kind of tucked in there hiding for us. Um, and that was really terrific news because that allowed uh, her to be uh, increasingly advanced on enteral feeds. Uh, here's how she looked as, a, as an infant, and here how she looks uh, today. Uh, she's got her backpack on, she's completely weaned from parental nutrition, and she's done, uh, done quite well. Um, it's those kind of stories that have really led the field of intestinal adaptation uh, to really be much more important as a, as a role to take care of children with intestinal failure. Uh, you can see that, uh, and it's not just happening in Boston, it's really happening all across the country where the number of intestinal transplants has really dropped substantially as we've gotten smarter about rehabilitating um, bowel, uh, short bowel patients. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, different uh, future directions that our group and others hope to um, approach. I've already mentioned GLP-2 analogs. Uh, I've mentioned briefly new intravenous fat um, preparations. There's all kinds of things we need to learn more about. There's all kinds of things we don't know about, right? So we talked about risk factors for prolonged parenteral nutrition. That doesn't necessarily mean we know exactly what to do. I know of no uh, clear-cut way in which we can um, compare advancement protocols across different centers. Um, there's a great variety of interest, a great degree of interest in developing biomarkers for measurements of intestinal uh, function. Uh, newer parenteral nutrition therapies, what does that mean when you give a child intravenous omega-3s? Does that have something, does that have an impact on adult cardiovascular disease? Does that have an impact on uh, infant growth and body composition? None of these are, are really known. Um, I have the uh, real nice uh, luxury of uh, working at a center that has numerous people. Um, that's uh, Kathy Gura, Mark Puder, Tom Jackson, surgeons, pharmacists, nurses, social workers. We've got a, a great group, all of whom uh, work every day about taking better care of our children with, uh, with short bowel syndrome. So with that, I will close and be happy to take any, any questions. Thank you. There's a small group of children with mitochondrial uh, disorders who have gut dysmotility and yes. are CPN dependent. And uh, my understanding at the time was for them, it seemed like intestinal transplant was really their only option because um, they were living on TPN and their, you know, once monthly Lyme sepsis. Mm. They seemed to have more, uh, a higher incidence of Lyme sepsis, which we're presuming was from bacterial translocation from their special form of gut dysmotility. Right, right. No, I, I think that they're still a, a, a large component of our home parental nutrition group. Um, there, there's been a lot of um, recent uh, popular press, I'm sure you followed the, the case of the child for whom Boston Children's actually took over their care, and there was a quite... Um, there continues to be quite controversy about how those mitochondrial <laughs> disease uh, patients are diagnosed. 
Um, I can only say that with improved measures of gastrointestinal motility, um, we've been um, much more aggressive with our measures of antiduodenal and colonic manometry to confirm that patients do or do not have dysmotility. If they don't, uh, then admitting them to the patients and trying to wean them for, for parenteral nutrition is our, is our best guess. Thanks for a great talk. Lots of uh, interest in the microbiome. Yes. Now, and it's not too hard to imagine that the microbiome would shift quite a bit if you suddenly got a very short bowel. Absolutely. So a lot more acid and stuff. Any, any work along that line? There's very few clinical data that I've seen on that topic. There's uh, the same people who did the, the mouse model of PN liver injury just published something in PLOS One that suggests that there were you know, changes in, in uh, bacterial um, content and quantity and, um, in, in a mouse model of intestinal resection. Um, but I've not seen any human data to confirm that. Uh, thank you for that nice talk. I'm, I'm trying to understand something that was brought up by that slide of the 30-weekers, those that were liberated from total parenteral nutrition, those that went on to die, those that went on to intestinal mm -hmm. transplant. And I guess, I, I think this point would address a lot of things that we talked about. Uh, those deaths, what are they due to? Are they are they due to the disease, or are they due to the complications of the treatment of disease? In other words, like Shalene mentioned, every week sepsis, right. hemorrhage, perforations of catheters, etc. Yes. So um, it's a good point that I did gloss over. A, a, a small component of those deaths were after, were post-transplant deaths. Um, and so those children were dying from either uh, graft rejection or infectious complications. But most of the deaths were before children got to the point of receiving transplantation, and they were uh, cholestatic liver disease and multi-organ failure complicated by sepsis in general. So that doesn't answer your question because the question is, which is it due to the therapy or the underlying disease? Um, I think in, in the modern era, we've been able to reduce the prevalence of cholestatic liver disease. So if you if you um, can reduce cholestasis, uh, then those deaths should really decline markedly as well. And that's what I think the more recent case series would suggest with much higher survival rate. I'm curious, uh, are there uh, any things that you can think of where adult surgeries, particularly obesity surgery, and findings there have translated into advances in the in the neonatal period or in children? Well, it's interesting that intestinal bypass surgery is one of the models for intestinal adaptation because it's long been known that if you bypass a large component of the gut, that's, a, that's essentially a way of a model of resection. And so if you look histologically at the distal bowel in a bypass model, it's actually you can see uh, increased height of the villi and depth of the crypt and presumably better absorption. The bowel is trying to accommodate, if you will, that bypass physiology. Um, but I think the surgical interventions that we've uh, learned about in intestinal failure patients haven't, I can't say that there's been a real um, insight from, from that physiology. Right. 
Right. So clearly, it's not a random skilled parental nutrition is a factor, but are there other factors that contributed to that decrease in that interim? I mean, this is prior to GLP-2. Right, right, no, exactly. Yeah, so so I can I can guess. I mean, we, we didn't have the data to really point that out. But even we before the PIFCON data came out, we we did a before and after study uh, before we established our own multidisciplinary center and and after. And and I, I strongly feel that one of the um, best components of having multiple people all in the same room taking care of a, a child leads to a lot fewer complications in terms of communication, in terms of access to different medications, and in just in terms of having a unified approach to advancing enteral feeds. So before we started care, a patient would see me, they would see their surgeon the next week, and the home parental nutrition the week after. And mixed messages were common, and misprescriptions, and a variety of adverse outcomes happened. And that uh, happens a lot less frequently now. So I think having a unified approach is, is really part of that. And you We do. We, we've got an effort uh, currently in which we have an approach. We, uh, Carrie Gosselin and I just published something last uh, month in the Journal of Pediatrics where we kind of outline what our what our approach is. This must be very expensive care. How are you yes. doing in getting insurances to cover this kind of care? I know Massachusetts is perhaps a better <coughs> state to live in than others, mm, but yes. in this regard. It's, it's a real, it, it hasn't, well, it's a challenge, um, and you're absolutely right, it's very expensive. Um, and what we've struggled with actually isn't so much uh, getting reimbursed for our, for our outpatient care or certainly our inpatient care. The struggle, in my mind, is we do everything we can to save these kids. We use all the technology, and then we send them home uh, getting parental nutrition and enteral nutrition, and that's where the system really falls through the cracks because home coverage for home nursing, as you can imagine, is uh, very variable depending on what your insurance pattern is. And despite a variety of income levels, almost all of our patients are using supplemental, supplementary mass Medicaid to cover a variety of different medications, home nursing, et cetera. So that's where I see is the biggest uh, gap. Yes, in terms of the estimates of what it costs to care for a ch an infant with intestinal failure, uh, one published estimate suggests that in the first year of life, it's about $600,000. Um, and at, thereafter, it's about $400,000 for every year. So it's very expensive. So Dr. Daggett is going to be kind enough to teach this afternoon at noon with our residence conference. That's going to be more on... Management of acute diarrhea, yes. Yeah, so um, that won't be exclusive to <coughs> Uh, a little bit, not as much as uh, I would like. So You'll have to have me up again to, to well, do that. Another <laughs> invitation. So with that, thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much.